Good to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. As we continue our series uh, exploring our identity in Christ, uh, if you remember, the, we looked the last two weeks at our identity as loved, uh, you are loved. We looked at Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. This morning, we look at our identity as the forgiven. Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15. And before we read, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on His Word. Lord God, as we turn our attention to Your Word this morning, I pray that Your Spirit would stir our hearts. And the same Spirit that illumined these beautiful words, I pray, O Lord, would illumine our own hearts. That these words may come to life in them, be planted deep within us, and produce fruit of change, which would be for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. And he says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You may be seated. <clears throat> a few years ago, I went uh, duck hunting in a marsh on a hot September day. And the only way to get out to my spot was to walk about a half mile through really tall, thick grass and cattails. And the walk itself would have been manageable, but if you know anything about duck hunting, you know that you can't hunt ducks without a lot of gear. And so I was not just walking, I was pulling behind me a sled filled with gear. And on top of that, I had a bag of, I had strapped onto my back, I was carrying on my back a bag of decoys. And when I say a bag of decoys, I don't mean a bag in the ordinary sense of the word. I mean a bag that really looks almost exactly like this. So a very extra large duck decoy bag filled with three dozen oversized magnum mallard decoys, each one with its own weight. So with a sled full of gear and a large bag of weighted decoys on my back, I began that half-mile trek to my hunting spot in the marsh, and the first few steps were fine. I think I was energized by the adrenaline, the excitement, the anticipation of the hunt that lay ahead. About 100 yards or so into it, I was drenched with sweat, and my legs were burning, and my back was aching, and my heart was racing. At about the quarter-mile mark, I was pretty close to crying. And I'm wondering why in the world I hadn't taken up a hobby like knitting or puzzles or anything that, that was not so much work. 
And when I finally made it to my destination, all I wanted to do was to ditch that bag of decoys and never pick it up again. Sin. Sin is like that heavy bag of decoys. We're born wearing it. And the more we sin, the more we add to it. And our guilt before God is a burden too heavy to bear. And, and whether we know it or not, what we, what we desperately need is, is, is for that burden to be taken from us. In, in biblical terms, what we desperately need is to be forgiven. And Paul says in our text this morning that this is what God has done for us in Christ, that through faith in Christ, we are forgiven. That is our identity. As part of our identity is we are the forgiven. And, and, and Paul shows us in these verses what our identity as the forgiven entails. And so we see first that to be forgiven is to be brought from death to life. Paul says in verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. You see, the problem of sin is not just a, a crippling disease. It's not just a nuisance. It's not sort of a, a meddling malady. It, it makes us spiritually dead. It cuts us off from the living God. It dooms us to everlasting punishment under His wrath. And Paul describes our deadness in sin in this verse as a deadness in the uncircumcision of your flesh. And it's kind of an awkward expression, but the basic sense of that is that apart from Christ, without the forgiveness of sin that comes through faith in Christ, our flesh, meaning our sinful nature, still clings to us and rules over us. That's what Paul means in that expression. So this is our condition apart from Christ, that we are dead in our sins. We are ruled by the sinful nature. We are slaves to sin and its dominion over us. And there's nothing within us that can change our condition. Just as a dead spider cannot do anything, it has no capacity to make itself live again, so too, Paul says, when we are dead in our sins, we have no capacity to come to God and live there's nothing within us that desires him, that craves his word, that even longs for the life that he gives. As Paul put it in Romans chapter 7, when we were in the realm of the flesh, there's that same word that Paul uses here in Colossians 2. It's the Greek word sarks, which uh, literally means, it's just the, the most basic literal meaning is physical flesh, the, the, the body, physical flesh. Paul often uses that word sarks in a figurative sense to refer to the sinful nature. And that's what I, I believe Paul, uh, the, the, the meaning that Paul intends in Colossians 2 and the meaning he intends here in Romans 7 as well. So when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful nature, the sinful passions, he says, were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. Spiritually dead people are ruled by sinful passions and produce spiritually dead fruit. This is why it should come as no surprise to us when we see such a depth of depravity in our schools or in our government or in media. Wherever there are spiritually dead people, there will be fruit for death. But Paul says that we who are in Christ are no longer in the realm of the flesh. The sinful nature no longer rules over us. This is what Paul calls our spiritual circumcision. Let me show you from verse 11. So just... Before our text this morning, he says in verse 11, 
Your whole self ruled by the flesh. There's that same word, sarks again, the sinful nature. Your whole self ruled by the sinful nature was put off. That's the image of circumcision when you were circumcised by Christ. In other, in other words, in Christ, the sinful nature that, that once ruled over us has been cut off, has been put away. It no longer has dominion over us. We've been brought from spiritual death to life. As Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That's who you were. That's, that's who you are in your, in your sinful nature when you're, when, when you're apart from Christ. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And so it is, it is entirely the work of God, purely his gift of grace. I, I love the way Alistair Begg once uh, described it. He said the transformation of the believer from spiritual death to life is like turning around a 15-ton train that has no steam in the engine. And he says no amount of human will or exertion could ever even move that train so much as an inch. It is the work of God alone that turns the train around. And what this means for us is that if we have been brought out of the deadness of sin, if we have been brought from death to life, then we ought to pursue the things of life. We ought to fix our hearts and our minds on things above and not on things below. We ought to invest in those things that produce the fruit of life and not return to those things that, that bear the fruit of death. So to be forgiven is to be brought from death to life, and this is entirely the gracious work of God. We see, second, that to be forgiven is to be brought from debt to freedom. So Paul says in verses 13 and 14, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. And that expression, the charge of our legal indebtedness, believe it or not, is a translation of just one single word in Greek. It's a translation of the, the Greek word karographon, uh, which is really a two-part word. Kero means hand, graphon means writing or written, so it literally means handwritten. And uh, it's a word that was used to refer to a handwritten certificate of debt. It was basically, a, or a record of debt as the ESV translates it. It was basically an IOU. And so the, if you were the debtor, if you were a debtor, you as the debtor would write a formal acknowledgement of your debt, and then you would sign your name to it, making it a legally binding document. That's what this word is talking about. And Paul is saying that our sin has left us in debt to God. As his creatures created for his glory, we are to live in obedience to his will. But we have utterly, we have all utterly failed to give him the obedience he is due. As Paul put it in Romans chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The demands of obedience to a holy God are far beyond our reach. And Paul says this leaves us with a legally binding charge of indebtedness. And this certificate, this recording of our debt, Paul says, stands against us and condemns us because it's written and recorded. Our names are on it. And so there's no escaping it. There's no hiding from it. It's just like, you know, if when a cop pulls you over... 
If ever a cop pulls you, it never happened to me, but I assume if ever a cop pulls you over and they go back into their cop car, what are they doing in their cop car? What is taking them so long when they're sitting in their cop car and you're just waiting on the side of the road with your lights flashing and your shame exposed for all the world to see? What are they doing in the cop car? They got that big computer screen. Well, they're pulling up your record. And so every, uh, again, I've never been in a cop car, I don't, but I assume every law that you've broken, every violation you've committed, every ticket you've got, every traffic violation, it's all there in writing for him to see. And so too with our sin, there's no saying that we're not guilty as charged because it's there. There's a record. There's a written certificate of indebtedness. And the penalty for our indebtedness, as Paul said in verse 13, is spiritual death. But to be forgiven is to have that charge of indebtedness canceled. And the word canceled means literally to wipe away. It's kind of an interesting word. In Paul's day, documents were typically written with ink on sheets of papyrus. And the papyrus was such that you could take, if you wanted to, some scribes wanted to reuse that papyrus and, or they maybe wanted to uh, undo what they had written. So you could take a sponge and you could wipe out what you had written and, and it, was, it was erased. It was gone. It was wiped away. And that's the meaning of the word, to wipe away, to erase, to remove. So to be forgiven means that the written proof of your indebtedness is gone. It is erased. It's canceled. The whole record of all of our sins is obliterated. The slate is wiped clean. And again, this is only for those who are in Christ. For those who are not in Christ, the slate is still there. The record is still there. But for those who are in Christ, it's wiped away. As the psalmist said in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And so as Paul says in Romans 8, therefore, there is now no condemnation. We were under condemnation. We are under condemnation apart from Christ. But those in Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is what it means to be forgiven. That burdensome bag of decoys has been lifted. The debt canceled and the guilt of all of your sin erased. There is no freedom so profound as the freedom from the debt of sin. And, and I wonder this morning, do you know? Do you know that freedom? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you fully trusting in his grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Well, Paul says at the end of verse 14, how God accomplished this washing, this canceling of the record of our debt. He says he did it by nailing it to the cross. 
You see, according to Roman custom, when a convicted criminal was crucified, that person's charges would be nailed to the cross above the victim's head. And so everybody could see this is, this is why this person has died. He's guilty of this charge, and this is why he's dying on the cross. And speaking metaphorically, Paul says that all of our charges, all of our sins, all of our guilt, all of the things that we had done wrong, all of our charges were nailed to the cross of Christ. So that it's as if he were guilty for them, though he is not. But he bore in his own body the punishment then for all of our sin. And by his death, the entire record of all of our sins was wiped away. It's at the cross that Christ took upon himself the burden of our guilt, and it's at the cross that we received the verdict of his righteousness. The story is told that Martin Luther had a dream one night in which the devil was standing at the, at the foot of his bed, and he held in his hand this, this, this impossibly large scroll. And on that scroll... Was written, were written all of the sins that Luther had ever committed from the least to the greatest. And the devil began to read them one by one going through that scroll. And they were all accurate and they were all true down to the, 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 the darkest detail. And when he was finished reading that long list of sins on the scroll, the devil pointed his finger in Luther's face and he accused him of his guilt. And he said, what hope? Of heaven does a miserable sinner like you have. And Luther felt his soul slipping into the abyss of despair, but just when it seemed that all hope was gone, he heard the voice of Jesus telling the accuser to unroll the scroll all the way. And Satan tried to refuse, but he knew that he couldn't. And when he unrolled that scroll all the way, there at the bottom of the scroll, at the very bottom underneath that entire record of sins were these words written in blood red, that this entire record of sins has been paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. The wonder of forgiveness is that if we receive Christ in true faith, then the whole lot of our sinful record, all of our IOUs, all of our careless words, all of our impure thoughts, all of our failures, all of our omissions, every single sin from past, present, into the future has been taken away, nailed to the cross. As the Apostle John said in 1 John 1, verse 7, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. And so we can say, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That brings us then to our final observation about our forgiveness in Christ, and that is to be forgiven is to be brought from bondage to victory. You see, at the cross, there, there's, a, there's an interesting, I think a, a profound connection between verses 14 and 15. At the cross, Christ not only re released his people from the guilt of sin, but from its hold over them. The picture that Paul paints 
in these verses is that the, the written certificate acknowledging the guilt of our sin was in the possession of Satan and the spiritual forces of evil. And by their possession of this damning indictment, they held us in their grip. They could point to that written certificate and say, you are guilty. And because you're guilty of this, you are mine. You're in my realm. You belong to me. To be forgiven, Paul says, is not only to take away the guilt of our sin, but to release us from the grip of these satanic powers who had power over us because of our sin. And so Paul says in verse 15, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Well, the image here is that of a Roman triumphal procession. And the triumphal procession was the highest honor bestowed upon generals in the Roman Empire. It was reserved only for exceptional victories. Uh, Historians say that in order for a a general to to achieve or receive a triumphal procession, he had to to kill at least 5,000 enemies in a battle and have won the war in that battle. And then if he did so, he could then earn a triumphal procession. The procession itself was a a victory march to the city of Rome and the captured prisoners were paraded through the streets in chains. And they were publicly exposed and shamed as the defeated enemy. The procession involved musicians and animals for sacrifices and treasures that were won in the war. And the victorious general was near the end of the procession riding in a chariot and robed in royal purple. And he was hailed as the triumphator which I think technically is pronounced triumphator, but I don't like it, so I'm going to keep saying triumphator because it just sounds better to me. And the procession ended with a great victory feast. And, and Paul says that that is what God has done to the rulers and the authorities, that Jesus himself is the triumphator, that he is the victor. And these enemies of ours that held power over us because of our sin have been conquered and exposed to the world as defeated enemies. So they hold no power over us anymore. The cross is God's megaphone to the world that the spiritual powers have no hold on those who belong to him in Jesus Christ. And we can't help but notice the irony in God's triumphal procession. You see, God did to the powers the very thing that they did to Christ. Do you catch that? You see what the powers did? They dragged Christ through Jerusalem. They stripped him naked. They publicly exposed his weakness, and they celebrated his apparent defeat. But all along, God was doing this very thing to them. He stripped them of their power and authority. He publicly exposed their weakness and he celebrated their defeat. He turned the tables on them. And in the end, what they thought was an instrument of disgrace was by God's design all along an instrument of glory. As John Calvin said, there is no tribunal so magnificent No throne so stately, no show of triumph so distinguished, no chariot so elevated, as is the cross on which Christ has subdued death and the devil and utterly trodden them under his feet. John Stott once said, 
that the two gifts of the forgiveness of all of our sins and deliverance from all the powers of evil are inseparable gifts. They are, they are uh, so essentially linked together that it's not possible to have one without the other. Where there is forgiveness of sins, he says, there is also freedom from the powers of evil. And so while these spiritual forces of evil continue to exist and they continue to, to, uh, to you know, interfere with the lives of believers and try to interfere with the work of the church and they threaten to undo us, as Martin Luther said in his great hymn, they are defeated enemies who have no hold over us in Christ. They've been stripped and disarmed. And when Christ returns, they will then be fully vanquished. Their doom is sure. And so we pray boldly in the triumphant name of Jesus Christ against the powers of this dark world. We, we do not fear the evil that lurks in the shadows. We claim victory over the spirit of fear that tries to keep us paralyzed and the spirit of guilt that tries to keep us bound, and the spirit of shame that tries to keep us in hiding, and the spirit of anger that tries to keep us in bitterness, and the spirit of worry that tries to hold us in despair. Because these are all enemies over which Christ has triumphed, and these defeated enemies have no hold on us anymore. And when they try to wrap their cold fingers around our hearts, we look to the cross. And claim our victory over them in the name of the triumphator, Jesus Christ. And we say in the words of that great hymn, Long my, in, my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. To be forgiven is to be brought from bondage to freedom. On a hot September day, that bag of decoys I was carrying seemed like a burden too heavy to bear. But far heavier is the burden of guilt over our sin. John Bunyan captures this so well in his book Pilgrim's Progress as the character Christian makes his way to the celestial city. His journey comes with great difficulty because of the great burden on his back, the burden of sin. And it's wearisome, it's burdensome, it's heavy. But at last he came to the place where the one thing he most desperately needed was granted. He came to the place where that great burden was finally removed. Listen to how Bunyan describes it in his own words. He says, Christian came to a hill, and upon that hill stood a cross. And just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden was loosened from his shoulders and fell from his back and tumbled down the hill into the tomb below. And Christian stood a while to look and wonder that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked and looked until the tears streamed down his cheeks. And as he stood looking and weeping, a shining one came to him and said, Your sins are forgiven. And Christian jumped for joy and went on singing, Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could I ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither, what a place is this? 
Here must be the beginning of my bliss. Here the burden has fallen from off my back. Here the strings that bound it to me did crack. Blessed cross, blessed tomb, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Some of you may be here this morning carrying that heavy burden of sin on your back. And may you, like pilgrim, look in wonder at the cross. May you hear the blessed words through faith in Christ that your sins are forgiven. May you know that the heavy burden of your sin, not in part but the whole, has been taken away. And may you leave here singing glory to the one who died for your sin at the cross. Let's bow together. Oh, Lord Jesus, what a gift. What a wonder. That for those who put our trust in you, Lord, at the cross, all of our sin, the entire record of past, present, and future sins has been lifted, canceled, erased, taken away. Oh, Lord, in this time of silent prayer and response, may we gaze in wonder at the cross. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has not yet put their trust in you, I pray, O oh Lord, that your spirit would bring them to that trust, that they might hear and know the beauty of these words that you are forgiven. The burden is lifted at Calvary. And if we have already put our trust in Christ, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would cause us to see anew the wonder and beauty of the cross and to know and to feel again the freedom of our forgiveness in Christ. O oh Lord, hear our silent response and prayer. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God, in his great mercy, made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away nailing it to the cross. 
And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Oh Lord, may we live in that glorious truth to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.